Our text for this morning is Jonah chapter 1. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 6. This is the word of Almighty God. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laden down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to them, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Pray with me. Again, Father, it is good. It is good to be gathered with your people. And now we gather under your word. Teach us. We surrender to you. We submit to your word. Show us how we should think, how we should live, and where is our hope. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. And you can be seated. You ever hear somebody say they can't see the forest for the trees? That phrase has something to do with a person who gets sidetracked. And they get sidetracked by details so much that they miss the point of something. Who in your family is the one most likely not to see the forest for the trees? Who's Who's the person who works so hard on the details of a party that they forget to enjoy it when it happens? You know what I'm talking about, right? You know, when we study the Bible, I think sometimes we miss the forest for the trees. Take the book of Jonah. What's it about? Would you say that Jonah is about a rebellious prophet or a man-eating fish? Not, not a man who's eating fish, by the way, but a fish that eats people. You get the idea. Or a repentant evil city? Or how about a grumpy, self-pitying, racist man? Because every one of those things is in the book of Jonah. But first and foremost, the book of Jonah is about God. The book of Jonah is to show us the character of God. The book of Jonah is to point us to Jesus Christ. And if we get so caught up in the colorful story... And it is a very true and literally real story. It's not fiction. But if we get so caught up in the story that we miss what it teaches us about God, we can't see the forest for the trees. Today, I want us to begin a summertime series that I'm entitling Jonah, colon, 
God's magnificent mercy. We're going to spend, right now I think five weeks, but who knows? I'm not good at planning. We'll spend five weeks or so in this glorious account. And we're going to see the drama and the poetry, the ugliness and the pettiness, and we will wonder at the ways of the Lord. But first and foremost, we will see that our God is great and our God is merciful. And Lord willing, that picture of God's magnificent mercy will lead you to love Jesus more. As we open the account today, we're going to find three points. And I want you to come along with me into the story. And I want you to learn about God in a sermon we're calling Our Magnificently Merciful God. Part one, because we're only making part of the chapter today. Point number one, are you ready? Are you excited to study Jonah? Yes. All right, good. Point number one, God commands us in his word. God commands us in his word. Look at verses one and two. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. That opening line of the book of Jonah, you see the Lord calling Jonah to go speak, and he's doing it in the same way that God calls all the prophets in the Old Testament. The language is very normal. The word of God is given to a particular man and that man is called to go and preach a particular message of God to a particular people. Who does the word of God come to? It comes to a man named Jonah. In case you're curious, the name Jonah literally means dove. Jonah's father's name though is mentioned here so we know exactly which particular Jonah God's talking to. If you read 2 Kings way back in 1425, chapter 14, verse 25, we find out that Jonah has prophesied at least one other time. He predicted the expansion of the northern kingdom of Israel under the reign of Jeroboam II. That prophecy of Jonah's came to pass before the end of Jeroboam's reign, which was that king reigned from 782 to 753 B.C., so you kind of want to assume that the events of the book of Jonah take place sometime in the early 8th century B.C. So for you guys who are hanging out with me studying Isaiah, that is really the generation before Isaiah was really on the scene. Now, the details of Jonah's life, though, they're not nearly as significant as the call of Jonah God calls Jonah, here in these opening verses, God calls Jonah to do something very simple. He says, get up and go preach. We know God tells Jonah to get up and preach against Nineveh. Nineveh is a great city. And just so you know, that's not meaning it's such a cool place to visit. That's not what God was saying. It is a large city and it's an important city. That's what great means there. It's a city in Assyria. And Assyria was a brutal, I mean, wicked, harsh, rough, violent, brutal foreign empire. And eventually, 
Assyria is, become, is going to become the bane of the northern kingdom. In fact, it is the Assyrian Empire that sweeps down into the northern kingdom and destroys it in the year 722. And we know God wants Jonah to preach against Nineveh because of the greatness of the wickedness of that city. But dear me, the call would have been hard. Assyria was a scary place. And Assyria was really wicked. And Jonah hated and feared those people. I want you to imagine how hard it would be for you if God called you to go and preach to people who had deeply hurt your family. It might have felt like if God called a Jewish person to go preach to the Nazis back in the 20th century. God knew this was going to be hard, but God still said to Jonah, get up and go preach. It was the right thing. It was a good thing. It was going to be to the glory of God. And wouldn't you agree with me when God says something like this, Jonah ought to obey? It is a clear, unmistakable call. Now, friends, that's as true for you and me as it is for Jonah. When God calls us to do something, God commands our obedience. For those who are his children, how many of you are children of God here today? We have no right to do anything other than obey when God commands us. And why is that? It's because God's our God. And if we're saved, we've been purchased by Jesus Christ for God. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? Now listen to this. Some of you can quote it with me. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Stop here and remember what it means to be a Christian, okay? Let's not lose that. Being a Christian means being rescued, saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You and I are sinners Jesus died to pay the price for our sins. And Jesus will grant forgiveness to every single person who repents and believes. Does that sound true to you? But listen to how Paul gives the gospel in a very familiar passage, Romans 10, 9. Again, one I bet half of you could quote for me. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Does that sound familiar to y'all? Okay. To be saved, then, one must believe in Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life as God in the flesh. He died to pay the price for our sins. And his resurrection proves that the work he did was complete. So when Paul says, believe that God raised him from the dead, 
in this little passage, that is to believe everything Jesus ever claimed about himself. Because if you can believe God raised Jesus from the dead, you can believe all the other stuff, right? That's not hard. Once you have Jesus alive today, it's not hard to believe he's God in the flesh. But Christians are also supposed to, according to that passage in Romans, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Part of that is confessing that Jesus is God the Son. Right? When Greek writers would use the Greek word kurios, which means Lord, to point to to Jesus or to, to point to God in any form, they were trying to bring to mind the Old Testament name for God which is Yahweh, or some have said Jehovah in years before, before they got a little better at pronouncing Hebrew. But to confess Jesus as Lord, besides confessing that Jesus is God, stick with me here, this is what I want you to get. If you confess Jesus as Lord, you are admitting his lordship. You are owning that he is Lord over you. Part of repenting and believing to be saved is that you accept that you are now a servant, a slave, a subject under Christ as king. As you submit to the lordship of Christ and place your trust in Jesus for salvation, God saves your soul and makes you into his very own child. That's Christianity. Now, I want to say to you now, if you hear me right now and there's never been a spot in your life where you came to God to ask him for forgiveness and entrusting your soul to Jesus, that's something you need to do. You and I have no hope apart from Jesus. You can't survive in front of God unless you're under the protection of Jesus. And Jesus says everyone who comes to him in faith and repentance will be forgiven. So, Turn away from sin, trust in Jesus, and be saved. Now, God called Jonah. Jonah should have obeyed. Agree? God gives you and me commands. The commands that God gives you and me are, they're not direct words that come to us in our ears like they may have for Jonah. Today, we hear the commands of God somewhere else. Where do you hear the commands of God? It's in Scripture. It's in the Holy Word of God. And when you hear the commands of God in His holy, inerrant Scripture, it is your responsibility, Christian, to obey. Obedience is the appropriate response of the people of God to the commands of God. Now, at times, I think you guys would agree with me, Sometimes the commands of God are difficult, right? Sometimes they might even be a little unsavory to our flesh. In fact, the command that God gave Jonah was fairly unpalatable. But you know what? Just me and you just talking like ordinary people here. Our opinion about the commands of God is pretty much irrelevant as to whether or not we should obey them. Wouldn't you agree? What is relevant is that obedience is a primary tenet of being in a relationship with God. Let me give you a couple of verses of Scripture just to listen to. You can write them down if you want to. 1 Samuel 15, 
22 to 23 says, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Or Psalm 103, verses 17 and 18, which read, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Or, how about one from Sunday school? Matthew 28. 19 to 20, Jesus says, Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe, to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Or you want to make it real simple? John 14, 15. Listen to these words from Jesus. Let your heart hear this, Christian. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Is that clear enough for you? This short list of verses makes it clear that when God commands, followers of God obey. Obedience is a critical element to a relationship with God. And without it, you don't have a relationship with God. God calls Jonah. Jonah should obey. When God calls us, we should obey. Now, I would guess most of you Christians have no problem agreeing with me in principle that when God commands a thing be done, we should listen to him. You all are on board with that, right? All right. And when God commands not to do a thing, we should listen to him, not do it. But this might leave you wondering about this thing, because at the beginning I was harping on mercy. Where's the mercy of God I said this book shows us God's glory, God's mercy. Where is the mercy in me saying to you that God tells you what to do and you better do it? Does that sound merciful to you? Maybe not. But I want you to consider first the alternative. What if God refused to tell you what to do? You ever think about that? What if God chose never to fill you in on how to please him. And what if God never cho chose to tell you how to find his grace? What if God never let you know certain things are right and other things are wrong? Do you think honestly that you would find the way to live a perfect life before God without God giving you any word? What do you think? No. Well, do you think if God never told you something was a sin that it wouldn't be a sin? That's bad logic, guys. Sin is falling short of the glory of God. The Lord does not have obligation to tell you what he wants, and God would still have every right, in fact, even every responsibility, to judge you and me for failing to meet God's standard of perfection, even if we never heard it. This is not hard for us to understand, is it? Someone goes out right now, picks up a rock and brains somebody so they die. But they say, no one ever told me murder was against the law. Would they get away with it? 
Actually, don't answer that, answer that in modern America. But in general, they shouldn't, right? So hear me. For God to tell us what is right and what is wrong is mercy from God. I will tell you three ways that's true. Three ways it's true that God telling you what's right and what's wrong is merciful. Ready? First, when God gives us his commands and his word, he shows us what pleases him and what falls short of his glory. He shows us in a a simple phrase, he shows us his character. God shows you what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, what's ugly and what's beautiful when he tells you what, what to do. He shows you what good is when he shows, and he's just showing himself to you. You've got to know that if you're going to know God. So God, God revealing what's right and what's wrong is God revealing God, and God revealing God to you is mercy. The first one is it just shows you, it lets you get to know God. That's why it's a mercy. A second reason, when God shows you what's right and what's wrong in his word, he shows you how to live best in the world that he created. God's commands teach us how to thrive as human beings. Well, how does God know what a person needs? Well, he did make us after all, right? God knows what's best for us. Even if the world around us has no idea what's best, God knows what's best. And if you choose to dishonor God and disobey God's commands, that is for us to make choices that will do harm to our lives and bring destruction on our souls. So for God to tell people how to live is mercy. Third, for God to show us in his word what is required is for God to show us how much we need a savior. Ultimately, God giving you his perfect holy standard points you to Jesus and leads you to cry out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That God would show us our need for a savior and then for God to provide that savior, that is true mercy. So please, friends, never look at the commands of God as anything less than God showing you sweet, glorious mercy. God gave you a treasure to love and to follow and to point you to Christ. So yes, the word of God coming to Jonah directly was a mercy and the word of God coming to you and me in holy inspired scripture, that is mercy from God. So let's be grateful to God even as we understand that we as God's children must obey. Unfortunately, we're going to see that Jonah... He's not really interested in obeying God. And we'll learn something about God in Jonah's disobedience. Point number two, God is present everywhere. God is present everywhere. Look at verses three and four. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. So Jonah's response to God's command is a different response than any other prophet we have in Scripture. Rather than obeying God, Jonah tries to run. 
Why does he run? You're going to get the answer to why Jonah runs in a future sermon more than today. The important point for you and me today is not why he runs, it's that he runs. Jonah is fleeing from, the scripture says, the presence of the Lord. You know, back in those days in other nations besides Israel, it was, not com- it was very common, it wasn't uncommon, it was very common, for people to hold a mistaken view of God. Many people believed that there wasn't one God, that there were, there were many gods. And they believed that these many gods were, were bound oftentimes to geographic locations. There was a God over the land of Israel, but he didn't reach outside the borders. And the same people believed that there was a God over Assyria, but didn't reach outside their borders. And there was a God of Moab and the gods of the Philistines and all the rest. And so when two nations would go to war back then, those kinds of people believed that there would be one God invading the land of another God and the stronger God would win. Which is why at the end of wars in those days, they would go in and they would ransack the temples and they would bring the idols out and parade them through the streets saying, my God, beat your God. Well, as Jonah flees, he says he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Maybe for a moment, Jonah is buying into the pagan and mistaken idea that God might not be able to catch him. He might convince himself in a deluded moment Maybe, just maybe, I can get where God can't reach me and be free of God's command. Now, the funny thing is, we know Jonah knows better than this. Down in verse 9, Jonah's going to call God the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. That's not a God bound to one particular location. But in this moment, we don't know what Jonah was thinking. But here's a lesson for you and for me. When you give in to sin... You can convince yourself of almost anything. You can convince yourself, God can't see me. You can convince yourself, well, I know God says this is wrong, but in my case, he's going to let it slide. You can convince yourself that you know better than God, that God's commands are out of date. You can convince yourself, well, I'm not a sinner because I can't help what I'm doing. But every one of those is a lie. Listen to me, friends. Sin blinds us, and we've got to be very, very careful. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be, listen to this, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Did you hear that? You know what will harden you, if you're not careful? The deceit of sin. We can be blinded by our desires so that we convince ourselves that we don't need to follow the word of God. By the way, as a side point in that, if you go back to that Hebrews verse and read it yourself, you're going to find out that the way we avoid being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin is that we encourage each other. You need each other. Christians, you're going to start hearing this a lot more from me now that the world is, you know, that... We're gathered in a nice, nice way right now. You're going to start hearing me tell you we need to be in each other's lives more than we are 
so that we can not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, that we can encourage one another. We're going to be giving you opportunities for that in the future, so be ready and be excited and be willing to jump into life together more than just Sunday mornings, okay? Jonah knows God is inescapable. Well, maybe Jonah thinks, if I run far enough, God will just let me go. Maybe he thinks, well, if I'm way down here, God will just pick somebody else to go to Nineveh so I don't have to. But whatever Jonah's reason was, Jonah goes in exactly the opposite direction of where he was commanded to go. Because Joppa and Tarshish, now they're not really important, other than that they are exactly the opposite direction from Nineveh. Jonah lived in a town up in the northern part of Israel that was about three miles away from Nazareth. The Assyrian city of Nineveh was about 500 miles away on the eastern bank of the Tigris in what we now call Iraq. Tarshish, which is probably a spot in Spain, is a thousand miles the other direction. So if you're here in Vegas and God told you to go to Los Angeles, which I could see why you wouldn't want to, if you jump in the car and start driving to Denver, that's you acting like Jonah. And that's especially you behaving like Jonah if you think that by running you're going to escape the presence of God and be free of his commands. We know, don't we? Don't we know that what Jonah's doing is futile? That it won't work? Listen to Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my dead in Sheol, or my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God's not bound by geography. There is nowhere you can go to be free from the presence of God. You can't climb up to heaven or dig down to hell and get away from God. You couldn't run fast enough even if you could outrun the rays of the sun to get away from God. Anywhere you turn, God is right there. Anywhere you go, his commands are still there to guide you. And when Jonah boards a ship to carry him away from the commands of God, guess who's right there? The Lord. And God's right there to put a storm on the sea because God's not bound by land or sea. In fact, God is in control of the sea, so Jonah's running is futile. And I want to say this to you, friends. Wouldn't you agree that our running from God would be futile? Isn't that crazy? But many people behave like Jonah, don't we? We try to run from God. We, we try to ignore the commands of God. We try to keep part of our lives off limits to God. But this scripture lets us know that there is no area of your life you can keep from God. And nowhere you could run could be free from the presence of God. There's a little play on words from the, the author of Jonah. Jonah went down to Joppa. He went down onto a ship. Verse 5, he's down in the hold. 
Down, down, down goes the prophet as he tries to hide from the Lord. And thinking you could run and hide from God is a descent into madness and futility. But God's not only present here, God's very active. Verse 1, God speaks to Jonah. God gave Jonah the calling. Verse 4, look at the wording of verse 4. What does God do with the storm? I want you to look. You can talk to me. We're going to pretend it's Sunday school for a second. What did God do with the storm? What's the verb? He hurls a storm on the sea. Do you get the graphic here? God is winding up and letting fly. And he sends a great tempest that will batter this little ship Jonah thinks he's going to get on to to hide. Now, here's the question. Can this great presence and power of God in our lives, can this also remind us of the mercy of God? Jonah couldn't run from God. Neither can you. God is with you wherever you are. Listen to me. You have never walked a step without the Lord at your side. You've never faced a hardship without the Lord acting to prevent it from being worse than it was. You've never faced a sorrow that is without purpose from the Lord. Romans 8.28 says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God works all things for good for those who love him. That is not God saying that everything you experience is a good thing. Some of us have experienced terrible things, but this is the mercy All the things that you have ever experienced have purpose. Nothing is meaningless. Nothing was random. Nothing will be wasted. All of our pains, all of our joys, all of our failures, all of our victories, all of our sufferings, All things in our lives are tools in the hands of God that God will use to accomplish God's purpose. All of them will be used to conform us to the image of God's Son. All of them will be used to demonstrate the mercy of God, the comforting touch of God, the justice of God. God's presence reminds us that God is with us and God is active. And at the same time, like Jonah, all of us have run from God. We've tried to ignore the commands of God. And God's right there. God sees it, has seen it all. God could have destroyed you and me the first time we ever failed him. But God has been so very merciful. In fact, sometimes when you ran from God, God has sent storms into your life to change the course of your life. God has reproved us and convicted us to change our path. Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6, the Bible says, Have you forgotten 
the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. I want you to pray, Christian, that you will indeed remember the love of God and see the mercy of the fact that God is with you in all circumstances. See the mercy of the God who's always with you, who won't let you hide, and who will never let you go. One more point. Point number three will be done. God is superior to all little g gods. God is superior to all, again, use a little g for gods. Five and six say, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Mariners are sailors. Just real quick, we'll do a little test here. I want to make sure you're awake anyway. What do sailors do? What's their job? That's correct, Russ. Sailors sail. That's what they do. That's what they're good at. And if sailors sail, sailors know what it's like to go through storms. If the, if the sailors are frightened, the storm has to be moderately powerful, wouldn't you say? This is dangerous. These sailors are so terrified, they're throwing the ship's cargo overboard to lighten the load so that the ship will float higher in the water. Now, some of you may know this about me, some of you may not. Back in the year 2003, Mitzi and I, this is even before our girl was born, moved to the city of Tejan, South Korea. And I served as pastor of Christian International Church in Tejan, South Korea for three and a half years. And, of course, we had to ship things to Korea. And there was a man who knew what he was doing who helped us know how to package this stuff up and get it put on a shipping thing to get taken by boat to Korea. You know how comforting it was when the man said, now you might want to purchase jettison insurance. (laughs) He meant it. Because you see, in today's world, ships can come across very stormy, very dangerous seas. Some of you have watched The Perfect Storm. And if things get so bad, the sailors, even in modern days, will slip the ship's cargo over the side into the sea because they're afraid for their lives. And it was that kind of situation Jonah's ship was in. Now the sailors, they're scared. They all cry out to their different pagan deities, hoping that maybe one of the gods can help, and none could. And where's Jonah? The Bible tells us Jonah has gone down below deck and is fast asleep. Can I say something to you about that real quick? That ain't normal. 
Jonah, yeah, he's been running. Yeah, he's probably tired getting down there as fast as he could. But something here is wrong for Jonah to be sleeping during that level of storm. And the, the captain comes down. He finds Jonah. Maybe he's down there looking for something else to throw overboard. And here's this dude asleep at the bottom of the boat. And he asks Jonah, what are you doing? How are you asleep? And he wakes Jonah up and he says to Jonah, hey, how about you pray? None of the gods of any of the sailors has had any impact on this storm. So maybe if Jonah cries out to some other god that Jonah serves, maybe it'll work. And God is beginning to give us a little contrast that we'll see all through chapter 1. Because what do the sailors try to do to rescue themselves? They try human effort. And they try crying out to false gods. And it doesn't work. It never works. You think you're going to fix your life by human effort or by crying out to gods that are not the real God? It will never work. You all know who's in control, don't you? The Lord, Yahweh. The God who hurled that storm upon the sea. He is in control. He started the storm. He most certainly can stop the storm whenever he wants. God is superior to all gods. And the Lord wants you to see this in this book. All people all over the world try to fix their lives through human effort. Many cry out to false gods. Many people give in to man-centered worldviews and theories and philosophies and ugly ideologies that you read about. But remember this. Psalm 96 verse 5 says, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So listen to me, friends. Our God is the one and only true God, and we rejoice that this one and only true God would receive sinners like us, that he would have mercy on us. And if anybody wants to have life, you got to come to the one true God in the way of the one true God, according to his word, by faith in God's Son. That's it. Now, We're going to leave Jonah for today. The storm is still raging. The waves are still battering the ship. The sailors are still panicking. They're they're still thinking that, well, maybe some god, any god, any deity out there might be able to help. And next week, we'll see the god who calms the storm. By the way, can you imagine that when I started this, I thought I would preach all of Jonah chapter 1? But friends, you and I know the God who calms the storm, don't we? Think think in your mind real quick to the New Testament. Picture another boat on a stormy sea. In fact, picture another person asleep on the boat during the storm. There's a day when the disciples of Jesus were caught in a storm and they were scared. And Jesus was asleep. And the disciples cried out in terror and woke Jesus up saying, you got to save us, we're going to die. And I just picture the Lord standing up, 
rubbing the sleep out of his eyes, looking at the storm and saying, hush. And the wind stops and the waves die down. And the disciples began to understand that they were in the boat with the God who is over the wind and the waves, the land and the sea. Today I urge you to come to this God, to Jesus, for life. If you know Jesus, thank him for his mercy. Praise him for being superior to all false gods. And praise him for being with you everywhere, all at once. And thank him for giving you his word, even as today you commit yourself again to obey God's word for God's glory and your good. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you. This is good. This is good to study. And God, I thank you because you revealed yourself to us. And God, I thank you for Jesus who came to give us mercy. And I pray that now you will help us to worship you well, to praise you, to honor you, to have our lives yielded to you. Don't let us cry out to false gods and don't let us think we're going to fix our lives through human effort. Let us rely on your son and follow your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.